You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This pandemic is not going away. Every single day, officials provide the numbers of COVID-19 cases and, sadly, how many Canadians have died because of the virus. Those numbers are real people, gone forever, leaving families behind in shock, overwhelmed by grief and dealing with unfathomable sadness. One of those families is from right here in York Region. Joining me now on the feed is Luciana Krupe from Markham. She lost her beloved husband, Joe, on December the 6th. Luciana, thank you for joining us, and we are so sorry for your loss. Thank you, Anne. Um, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been quite a, quite a journey for my family and myself, and um, I'm happy to do this interview with you and, and hopefully shed some light to others who may not un- understand the complexity of the whole thing. Luciana, Joe was a fit healthy 65-year-old, how could he have died from COVID-19? That's a question I ask myself every day. Uh, he, he was fit. I mean, he golfed. He um, uh, enjoyed hockey. He would garden. That was his love of his life. He would love to get out there and garden. The neighbors actually would, would see him, like, out first thing in the morning, and they, they would say, like, what's the rush? Like, sit down, relax a little bit. So you're always working, always buzzing around. But that was just the kind of guy that he was. He could never sit down for a minute. And he was healthy and fit and with no underlying issues at all. What was his response to the pandemic when it was initially declared March 11th and subsequent first wave and issues surrounding that. How did he respond to the restrictions and the fear that many people had about COVID-19 in the early going? Well, initially he, he was working, he was still working and, um, you know, he was a director of, um, capital expenditures and, uh, he, obviously they, they asked staff to stay home. And so he did. And, he took it very seriously. He was making sure that the children were, you know, masked and washing their hands and, you know, keeping social distance. We didn't socialize with anybody. He would, he would go out and do grocery shopping, come home, and he would sterilize bags. He would buy cases of sanitizer. He was just so on top of it, and he was so careful. And he was right up until October, when all this hit him. Luciana, do you know how he contracted the virus? Yes, and at work. He went to work one day, and um, that's where he believes he contracted it. What did he say to you when he first began to f- see and feel the symptoms of COVID-19? His symptoms were very, very minor. Um, he was complaining of body aches, he was chilled, and he had a little bit of a cough, but nothing, I mean, we actually thought it was a cold, and when he came home and told me, I think I'm going to go get tested, I actually kind of chuckled because I said, like, why? Well, you haven't been anywhere, right? Um, but he did go get tested, and, uh, and he did pet test positive, and shortly after that, I tested positive as well. 
so what happened next? He struggled with this virus. At what point did you think it was necessary that he be hospitalized? Well, initially, like I said, his symptoms were very mild, um, and he was actually just performing regular household duties at home. He wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't really showing any signs that were that were making me think that this could be any more than just uh, a minor COVID symptom. But he did struggle to to breathe. He was his. I, I was sitting across from him one day, and I was watching him, and his breathing was rather quickly, was rather quick, sorry. And um, I kept asking him, are you okay? Can you breathe? And he would say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I said, okay. But I kept my eye on him. And as the days went on, I noticed that he was still struggling. So I said, you know, I think you should go to to the hospital. Just go get checked and and get an x-ray and, you know, check your oxygen, what have you. So I drove him to the hospital dropped him off because obviously I couldn't go in with him. And um, they took him in. He was dehydrated. Um, they did a chest x-ray and he had minor pneumonia. So they gave him some medication, sent him home. For the next few days, we just kept an eye on him. My children had already isolated elsewhere, so it was just the two of us in the house. Um, he, so he went, uh, he went on and, and by the 29th, so four days later, I noticed that he was starting to get worse, and I just so happened to order a, an oximeter, which is one of those devices that you put on your finger to check your oxygen level, and it was down to 30, mm. and it's supposed to be in the high 90s, and I, I couldn't believe it. I said, I thought maybe I was doing something wrong, so I put it on my finger, and it read 98, so I did it again, and again, it showed up 30, and um, that's when I decided to call the hospital call 911. What happened then? Where did he go at that point? At that point, he went to Markham Stovall Hospital. They took him in. Within 20 minutes, half an hour, I got a phone call from uh, ER saying that they were going to intubate him, put him on a ventilator. And I was was shocked because I thought, really, I didn't think it was going to go that far. And uh, they had to get my permission, obviously, to intubate him. And I said, yes, go ahead. I spoke with him. And um, <clears throat> he, um, he told me not to be scared that they were going to intubate him. And, uh, and that was the last time I spoke to him. So um, from that day forward, uh, he stayed at Markham Stovall Hospital for uh, four days, I think it was. And then they decided to airlift him to Toronto General in the event that he would need to go on an ECMO machine, because um, Markham Stovall Hospital does not have those machines. And um, they, they kept him there. Within three days after that, he did, in fact, have to go on to an ECMO machine, which is essentially a lung machine that works outside of your body. Luciana, what were those final days like for you? Oh, gosh. I thought every day was going to be a final day. I didn't know, I didn't really know what to expect. We, we were on pins and needles for five weeks, five weeks of no sleep, five weeks of barely wanting to eat. It was horrendous. My children were, um, you know, they were here with me. We FaceTimed with him. 
been, there was a lovely um, woman there that uh, we're forever grateful for that would uh, set up the camera and we would talk to him because they say that they do hear you. He was completely paralyzed, completely sedated. So there was no conversation back and forth, obviously. But we did see him and uh, it, was, it, was, it was traumatic. You lost him on December the 6th. What was that day like for you? We were, we were called into the hospital that morning um, saying that he had had a rough night. He had a rough night and maybe that we should go and, and see him. So my children and I got into the car, went down, went to see him. We spent several hours with him and he... Uh, he was on all, you know, like hooked up to all these machines and wires and he just wasn't looking like my husband at all. And we, we had a quiet moment together to discuss what we should do. And uh, we thought, you know, we can't let dad just lay in that bed like that. That's not our dad. He died long ago. He was only being supported by these machines. And was it fair? No. I mean, that's not the man that we... We know that's not the man that I married 34 years ago. Um, he, he was suffering inside. We were suffering on the outside just looking at him. So we made this very difficult decision to tell the doctors that they needed to stop all medications and stop the machines and let him go peacefully. Luciana, what do you hope people will learn from Joe's death? You can't take... You can't take whatever's going on now with COVID for granted. You have to listen. You have to keep your social distance. You have to wear masks. You have to sanitize your hands. I'm just, if I, if I, had, if I had a dime for every person that I read that says, uh, you know, on social media that reads about, you know, this is a hoax and this is that and this is whatever and they don't believe it, I would, I would be a rich person. Because, and it angers me. It really angers me to read that now that I've lost my husband and I've lost the father to my children. Um, I wouldn't want this to happen to anybody. So I hope that they take our story and they take something from it. Luciana, are you and your family finding some sort of strength to carry on by giving back, you are fundraising and you're doing so much in Joe's memory. Is that helping you? It, it really is. And, you know, I don't know where we're finding the strength to go on. I really don't. And I think the fact that we're doing something, the fact that we're giving back to the hospital and now moving, moving on to Markham Stovall Hospital, I hope we can do just as much. But, yes, it's giving us some comfort. And I know that my husband would be... I know that he'd be proud of, of his children and his family, and, uh, and, that, and that's all I can hope for. You have raised a good amount of money for Toronto General Hospital. Now your focus is, as you mentioned, Markham Stouffville Hospital. What does that hospital mean to you And when it comes to Joe's journey and your journey? Oh, my gosh. Well, it, I live right around the corner from it. So for me, if I have something wrong with myself or any of my family members, that's the first hospital we go to. So I, I want to see 
um, I want to see them getting what they need for critical care or wherever they, wherever they need to allot the money to. That, that is totally fine with us as long as, you know, um, it will help other people. And, uh, and that's all I can say about that. Joe will never be forgotten. How do you want him to be remembered? I want him to be remembered as a, a loving man who always gave to others. He was so humble. He would never, he'd never boast about, you know, coming home and, and, and telling us what he did with, for other people. As a matter of fact, this outpour of, of people that are coming to us now and telling us stories about him, stories that we've never, ever heard from him. And it's just shocking us. So we, outside of our home, he was another person. And he is, uh, he's coming forward through all these people that are telling us stories. And we're just learning about a man that we love so much. And he had so much to give. And he still would have had so much to give. And it's unfortunate that his life was taken so early. The message is loud and clear that we have to take COVID-19 seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a joke. Luciana, I know you have the love and support of of your family and new friends and old friends, everyone who has been touched by your story and by Joe's loss. Would you... Tell me how important your son and daughter are to you right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they are my rocks. They're my mountains, I could say, because without them, I don't know if I would have been able to handle this. They have taken over everything, all this social media stuff, because it's sometimes a little bit too much for me to handle. They've taken over all of that, and without them, honestly, their strength has come through for me, and I'm so, so proud of them that they have, I suppose, I'm going to say it, I think they have their father's strength. I don't know about mine because I feel like I'm going to fall apart to pieces sometimes, but they are there to pick me up and help me move on, and for them, I have to do that. They have Joe's strength. They also have your strength. You are incredibly courageous, and I... I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us on the feed and telling your story and letting us understand more about Joe and his very difficult journey with COVID-19, but also understanding we must take this disease seriously, this virus seriously. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Luciana. To donate in Joe's memory, a fundraising page has been set up on the Markham Stouffville website. Please go to support.mshf.on.ca. Coming up next, the game-changing vaccine. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The vaccine is making headlines around the world, offering hope where there was despair. Tina Cortez with one of the first healthcare workers to get the shot here at home. 
Colette Cameron is the executive director of the Rick Eye Centre, Sherburn Place, and she has been working at the centre for five years. Thank you for joining us on the show, Colette. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So you were one of the first to receive the Pfizer vaccine. What did it feel like? Um, it was it's a real pr- privilege and honor um, to be one of the very first people to actually start making a difference in fighting the COVID pandemic. It, uh, my team and I were very honored to be invited, um, and we hope that uh, more people will follow in our footsteps, and so that we can, uh, you know, there's, there's a light at the end of this tunnel now, and hopefully with more people, we'll get to, to the end of that tunnel. You said it was an honor and a privilege. Can I ask, did you get emotional? I got really emotional when I, I was the fifth one, so we had the, my team go up first. And as I watched them all do it, I did get all teary-eyed. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm so proud of them. They worked so hard. And, they, you know, they're stepping up here when a lot of people are questioning the safety of the vaccine and the efficacy of it and, you know, the fact that it came out so quickly and other vaccines take a long time to, to be approved. Um, but they, they care so much about their residents that they said, you know, I, I've got to do this. I want to make sure I do this so that I, you know, I become uh, immune to this virus and I keep the people that I care for safe. So, yeah, I was really touched by their commitment. And you're part of history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yes. By the, the one, our, the first PSW that went up in Nita, I've seen her face all over every social media and whatnot, and uh, she's such an unassuming person that it, it's, it's funny to see that she's this world star now, and uh, she she wouldn't acknowledge that at all. Like she, <laughs> I don't even know if she looks at social media, so she's probably not even aware how how everybody knows who she is. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, you spent time as an RN, as a PSW. Did you ever think that this would happen to you? No, no. When we, when our home was hit early on in wave one with an outbreak, um, and unfortunately, by the time the, our first resident became symptomatic, he must have had it, you know, been infected, and he infected most of the staff on that floor. Um, so... They, when we found he was COVID positive, they all went and were tested, and a good part, portion of them were all COVID positive, so they had to leave the workplace. So on days, I had one PSW left, so I had to, as I said, don my scrubs and get there, and we, we had to do, and we worked so hard to make sure that all our residents were well cared for, well fed, changed, and, you know, and brought them some quality of life um, because we, we just had to. You know, the, the, that's why we're here. We're here for the residents. So, so we worked we worked long, long hours <laughs> to make up for the, the fact that there were people that, um, that couldn't work. And then uh, UHN, the hospital chain, after we'd been in outbreak for about a week and a half, they came to our rescue and brought a number of staff that supported us. So I was able to get a bit of a breather at that time. But for a couple of weeks, it, it was... It, it was just uh, horrific. Um, did yeah. you did you lose residents to the virus? We did. We did lose residents. Um, some of the most of the residents that we lost were, were compromised, but um, but still, they we, our home was kind of unique that we have a lot of residents that don't have a lot of family, and then we we have some that the family was so involved that they felt like 
we were part of their family, so to lose residents was just devastating to all of us. It, um, I mean, and this, we're coming up to the holiday season, and this will be the first year that um, these residents aren't with us. So it seems even more bittersweet right now. And we, we were talking about that now. How Christmas is just not going to be the same this year because we've lost some people, and and I'm sure their families feel the same way. So let's get back to the vaccine, and you received it almost a week ago now. Has there been any sort of post-shot pain? Are you feeling any differently? No, uh, that the night that I, I received it on Monday, so the night that I received it, my arm was just a tad sore, but by morning it was fine, and that's that's the only adverse reaction I had. Um, it, I, we get the flu shot. It's no different than the flu shot, so it's... Uh, it was quite easy. And is there anything special? I don't special? like needles, so. <laughs> okay. And is there anything special that you need to do now until you receive the second shot? No, it's that if I had any kind of uh, adverse reactions, I had to report it. But um, just continue on, do everything, all the, the safety precautions. I wear a mask all the time, um, hand washing, social distancing. And then I have an appointment on January 4th to go back and get the second dose. And then they figure probably about eight days after the second dose, I will have immunity to the COVID virus. But they're still not sure if you you could still carry the virus and just not become sick by it. So it'll we nothing is going to change. We're going to continue wearing our full PPE at work, doing everything in the community that we do now. But you know, the, again, masking and hand washing and social distancing. So nothing will change until you know the community is all vaccinated. And we'll still continue having our, our COVID testing every week as well. Even though we we all could be considered immune, we still have to do that. Was there any kind of hesitation on your part to be among the first to receive the vaccine? No, I, I did my own research. I, I read up on the, the, the clinical trials. that uh, There have been over 40,000 participants in the clinical trial, and there was only two people that had had some kind of allergic reaction and turned out those two people had had previous allergic reactions to vaccines. So, um, yeah, when I read that and I know, you know, a lot, every, this is worldwide. So there was a lot of emphasis on making sure that this virus was, um, um, that it would work, that it would uh, be effective. And I think that uh, I I just believe in the science of it. So I, I was quite happy to take it. So what's next, if you know, in terms of your long-term care center? Do all of your colleagues, will they all receive the vaccine? What about the residents? So currently, because the, the Pfizer vaccine is has to be kept in a certain area, it has to be frozen and then thawed and, and can't be transported around very easily. So all any of my staff that want to get it on the, this first round can get it. So we've had staff going for the last two days to the site to to get the the um, injection and then with the news that the Moderna uh, vaccine is coming on board that's one that will probably be given to long-term care homes to administer to residents because it's a, a one injection um, vaccine and it the um, the you don't need the same kind of precautions with with its storage. So as soon as that gets to us, we'll be administering it to our residents and any staff member who hasn't been um, to the sites to get the Pfizer vaccine. So what's your message for those who are reluctant when the turn does come to the average person to get the vaccine or at least be offered the opportunity to have the vaccine? What's your message to those who are saying, you know what, I think I'm going to wait? What do you want to tell them? Yeah. Well, I, 
I don't see any other solution to ending this pandemic than by vaccinating the world. (laughs) We haven't heard of anything else, and unless people want to continue having their lives impacted the way the COVID virus has impacted on them, I would say then then listen to the science and, and have the injection. I mean, so far we haven't seen anybody that's had any kind of true adverse reactions. And granted, I, I, I do understand that we don't know the long-term effects of it, but we don't know the long-term effects of COVID either. We've, and, and the number of deaths that we've seen from it, um, yeah, I, I mean, you have to weigh, do you want the COVID or do you, do you want the vaccine? You're absolutely right. And earlier in the show, we had the story of one family who lost their loved one to Mm -hmm. COVID-19. And, you know, there are many of these stories around. So we absolutely have to listen to the science for sure. Colette Cameron, Mm -hmm. thank you for being among the first. Thank you for being on the front lines. And thank you for your work. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And to all your listeners, please wear your mask. It's very easy to do. After the break, mental health support for veterans. This is the feed on 1059 The Region. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Please listen to this. We can be surrounded by people and still feel loneliness. We can be spreading kindness and still feel hopeless. We can be experiencing the joys of this season and still feel discouraged. You are seen. You are not alone. Together, we can have better days. Together, we can heal. That was a poignant message from the Center of Excellence on PTSD in their effort to shine a light on the emotional complexities that arise for so many veterans during the holiday season and add to that the pandemic. Brian McKenna is a retired warrant officer and veteran advisor at the Center of Excellence on PTSD and Related Mental Health Conditions. He joins us now on the feed. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. So... What is the true message in the PSA that we just listened to, Brian? Well, I think one of the messages is that when you're sitting there at Christmas and you've got a table full of food, lots of extras around, Christmas crackers, gifts, and, you know, family may have joined, of course, not in a COVID year, but you might be in that situation and someone at that table might not be having the same experience as you. For me, when I was a veteran that had just come back from being in a hostile situation overseas, I was uh, very wary of sitting at a table with people that were within two feet of me. I didn't like to see food waste because I'd seen people that didn't have any food. And those were the things going through my mind at the kitchen table while everyone else is having a great time and cheersing each other. So that can be part of the veteran experience. So the holiday pressures that so many people feel must weigh very heavily on veterans who are struggling with the mental health aspect of post-military life, you know, having to play a part in the rituals of the season. How did you handle that? Did you seek help? Well, one of my failings through it, if you could look at it that way, 
was there was one year particularly that I tried to kind of spend my way through it. And so there I was in December trying to get the next best gift so you could get the next biggest smile from the person you're giving it to, trying to uplift yourself that way. But you're solving the problem that you don't have. You don't have a lack of smiles and happiness around you. I had a problem within me. And that problem persists, and then the bills hit at the end of January, and that created a brand new problem set. So I wasn't trained and ready for how to handle the situation over the holidays. So that was a big mistake I made. I have learned from it. Brian, what is it about a veteran's past service to country and to Queen that makes them vulnerable in their new lives? Well, one of the problems is when you get off that plane, you come down that escalator, you're probably greeted by people that are happy to see you. But generally, you're within a collection of people that have no idea what you've been up to. Even if they personally feel that they are up to speed on what's going on in the rest of the world, it's very, very difficult for them to actually get it. And so you're coming back to a society that doesn't understand. A large part of that society may not agree with that mission. And that's the, the country you come back to. That's the same country you've got to go and try to find help in, is one where 50% or some odd like that don't really know what you're talking about. And that puts you in a worse position than if you're just trying to access the medical system. There are close to 650,000 veterans here in Canada. How are they doing? You know, it's a pretty blanket question, and I I don't think that it deserves a blanket answer. It, It deserves a little bit more insight. But in general, how are our veterans doing today? Well, I think if you would ask veterans a generic question about how they're doing, it would be the same as saying, you know, how's Winnipeg doing? Because the community size is almost the same, and the opinion set that you would get out of that would be almost as diverse. I think, though, I have to say things have gotten better. If you talk about things like helplines, I remember when I first had a problem, I phoned a helpline where they told me, by automated message that they might get back to me in a few days. Today, it's different. Today, there's actually someone on the other end of the line. And so we have made forward progress, and I want the veterans and family members that might be hearing me right now to know that if you've heard bad stories in the past, I'm not saying it's all happiness and and roses, but we have made progress. And that Veterans Mental Health Line can be accessed by going to the Veterans Affairs website. But I want to bring in the Center of Excellence. Why was it created and what does it do? What do you do to help veterans who have gone through your experience or are experiencing something uh, far greater, far worse, uh, maybe not as difficult as what you went through? So let me give you an example. Starting in uh, July of this year, I was asked to look at a project on a thing called moral injury. And the information in the project was was correct. It was well done. It was well researched as far as I could tell. But what it didn't have was a veteran experience in it. It didn't have a situation where someone had taken what they were reading, looked at it through the eyes of someone who'd lived it, and helped that go on paper too. Because when that happens... Veterans can feel it, 
they'll read it, their spouses can read it, and they can absorb it because it's written in their language. So that happened this very year. Over the last number of months, I've been working on that project and just injecting the veteran's point of view, and it just puts it in a more palatable piece of language so that when people pick it up, they can read it and they can understand it without having to take it, say, to a doctor for interpretation. That's one of the things I've been working on just in the last couple of months. So what exactly is the objective then of the Center of Excellence on post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, a couple of our main pillars are uh, knowledge mobilization, communication, and research. Sounds like a mouthful. But what you'll find is imagine right now you're looking on solutions for a knee injury, and you might find that the, the newest tech of that is in England. Well, you need someone to go find that for you. We need that too. You know, you might find that the Americans are ahead on a certain project. It's not advantageous for the Canadian taxpayer to take that issue, start at zero, and start running. So we want to find what's out there, bring it, and make sure we can make it in palatable, understandable language or knowledge mobilization. And then when we identify key areas that we don't know the answer yet, well, we need to go find that answer, and that would be our research side. So those are two of the main functions that you will see from the Center of Excellence. So the Center's website offers information on PTSD treatments, how to talk to your kids about PTSD and families. How important is that aspect of dealing with this traumatic disorder? Well, that's one of the issues that I think a lot of veterans come home to. I mean, just think about the situation I was saying about coming down that escalator at the airport and you're walking into the arms of people that want to make it better but that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to know how. They might need some coaching, too. They might need some assistance. And a year later of handling your situation and trying to be the best caregiver that they can, sometimes they're the ones that need help. Lots of it. And we have to keep moving forward. And the best way to do that is to start always looking at the veteran and their family as as a central unit that needs care. Not kind of, not maybe, and not later always have that family front and center when you're dealing with the veteran. Then you're dealing with the whole problem. So you mentioned the mental health line for veterans and that there is a live person on the other end of the phone who has knowledge and insight into how to help a veteran with PTSD. Is it the same issue, uh, the same deal with the Center of Excellence? And for instance, what you do, are you there to virtually or on the phone, because we're in a pandemic, help each and every veteran that reaches out to you? So if I can be clear, we're looking at that public service announcement we did about uh, the Christmas season. That originated, that that issue that we decided to grab and run with, uh, came out of a meeting a month and a half ago where we were speaking about the budget. And I put up my hand, figuratively, I guess, and said, look, We'll, we'll get to that very important conversation later. We need to have this conversation now. And that's one of the reasons I like working where I, I'm at. Because when someone like me puts up their hand and says, the veteran community has an issue, here it is, and we need to get on it, well, they let us get on it. I was immediately helped on that. And next thing you know, I'm speaking to you because the team sees how important this conversation is. Do you think Canadians understand how important this conversation is? 
I think they want to understand. I actually think uh, Canadian citizens love their veteran community, and they also are aware that they pay dollars into it, a significant, significant amount, and they expect to see services delivered to the vets. But it is more challenging than people think. You know, I, I have to often remind people inside my workplace and out that you've got, you've got the, the service you have in Vancouver. If I don't like my doctor, I can pick another one. That's not the same answer in Swift Current or Shiloh, Manitoba, right? So we have to make sure that our answers that we provide are, are viable answers in Yellowknife, not just the major urban centers. I want us to keep remembering that, specifically, you know, at a time like this. May I ask you a very personal question, Brian? Yeah, go ahead. How is your mental health today, and do you ever have regrets uh, serving in the military and coming out of it and having to adjust and deal with PTSD? You know, I think the hardest part for me over this time was when I was told that I could no longer serve in the military. That was actually harder than the events themselves. You know, it's a lot of how people identify themselves. We, we often introduce ourselves, and then 10 seconds later, we're talking to a person about what we do, as in what we do is often who we are. And for years, I was able to look someone in the eye and say, yeah, I work for Department of National Defense. I'm in the military. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't say that. I couldn't even say that to my own kids, and I had a really hard time telling them what it was Dad did when Dad is really sick and trying to get better. That loss of identity crushes people, and it really set me back big time. So that's one of the things I'm not sure Canadians understand as much as I would like them to. Retired warrant officer and veteran advisor at the Center of Excellence on PTSD and Related Mental Health Conditions, Brian McKenna, thank you for your service then. Thank you for what you're doing today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. The War Amps has been making a difference in the lives of amputees for more than a century, but there is still so much to do. Jim Lang with that story. Well, few things are synonymous with Canadians over the, I guess, last decades, not just back, going back to the 70s, as the War Amps program in the Play Safe program for children. Uh, thrilled to be speaking to Jamie Lunn, the public awareness officer at War Amps, and someone who was helped as a child by War Amps herself. What a perfect person to speak to about this great program. Jamie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. And how are you? Fine, thank you. My uh, uncle, my father's uncle, lost a leg after World War II and was helped out by the Warrants program, as many Canadian veterans were. And and I remember growing up and the, getting the key tags and the programs and everything. But it, it, you, sometimes you think, oh, that's nice. And then you see someone like yourself who was helped as a child by Warrants, and look where you've become the public awareness officer for Warrants. It's quite a story. It really is. It's been an incredible journey to be involved with the association my entire life. Um, you know, my, the Warrants actually contacted my family uh, shortly after I was born when they heard uh, that a child amputee was born. And uh, my parents obviously accepted the assistance right away. And just incredible to see that, uh, that even now, um, you know, I continue to stay involved. And we see that right across this great country um, with, uh, with those who are involved in, in the association um, and, uh, and continue to be um, pretty much their entire lives. 
You know, I've done some work, Jamie, with some of the members of the Canadian uh, National Sledge Hockey Team and some of their the issues they've had being amputees or having disabilities. And we think that in 2020, we're so progressive and so woke, as they like to say. But the war amp steps in when others won't help them. That's right. And, uh, and you know, that's really been uh, what, we've, what we've been able to do for a very long time. You know, the War Amps Child Amputee Program was started in 1975, and that was shortly after War Amputee um, veterans uh, started to realize that a lot of their needs were met, and so they wanted to help civilian and child amputees, and they were able to really start to do that. And, and it's pretty incredible to see the difference that the War Amps really makes in amputees' lives across this country uh, and, and in child amputees' lives especially. And for a lot of fans like myself, sports fans, we grew up and saw the commercials for the CHAMP program where uh, you know, able-bodied adults were helping kids uh, live the full life, play sports, be active with the prosthetics that they receive from the War Amps program. And there's a couple of great stories about two young individuals, a 12-year-old from Markham, Jericho Rodriguez, and from Quebec, Gabriel Finn, both young individuals in Canada benefiting from the, the amazing work done by the War Amps program. Yes, and and uh, and we see that again um, always. You know, myself, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in the child amputee program as well, and I really benefited from uh, the financial assistance for artificial limbs. And you can really see that in both Gabriel um, and also in Jericho. So it's really incredible to see how we can really change their lives with those artificial limbs and with funding for those artificial limbs. You know, and I think about Jericho, Jamie. He's a double leg, double leg amputee. But he has running legs, so now he can run with his friends and be like any other 12-year-old kid. He just has different legs, but he still enjoys the same thing all the other kids enjoy. That's right, and it's really incredible to watch um, those uh, you know, who are double-leg amputees, who have uh, amputations at a very high level, uh, be able to put on those running legs and be able to really accomplish all of the things that they've always wanted to. Um, and, and, you know, the War Amps CHAMP program covers the full cost of recreational limbs. And, and, you know, that is a lot of money to be able to get these artificial limbs. So someone like Jericho now um, can be able to really run. And I know that he's been using running legs for a few years, but just being able to get new ones that fit properly um, and, and that work perfectly for him is just an incredible feeling that he's able to move so freely. And I'm glad you brought that up, Jamie, because I had the opportunity to meet someone part of the sledge hockey team and has an artificial leg. And so that was the big challenge is finding an artificial leg that fit his body and work for him because you just can't put one in everyone. It's, it has to be custom made to the individual. That's right. And, and every single uh, artificial limb has to be custom made. That's so correct. And, and some of the things I think that people don't, uh, don't always think about is that, uh, that artificial limbs don't heal um, like our bodies do. So, you know, any time that we may um, break them or, or put them through a little bit, uh, or even, you know, every couple of years, they may need repairs. And then also for child amputees, they grow out of artificial limbs as quickly as they would grow out of a pair of shoes, for example. So they always need to get new ones, or if they gain a little bit of weight or even lose a little bit of weight, they always need to get new artificial limbs because they need to fit so perfectly to make sure that there is no pain there and there's no other issues um, wearing that limb, especially an artificial leg, um, to help them to move around and be free. Speaking with Jamie Lunn, who's the public awareness officer for the War Amps program, and uh, we'll get to more about Jericho and Gabriel in a second and how they're going to connect over the holidays into the new year. 
as we approach 2021, Jamie, are as Canadians, are, are our attitudes better? Are they different than, say, they were in the 70s towards an adult or a kid who has a prosthetic limb who had an amputation? I definitely see a lot of changes uh, even in my lifetime. Uh, I've seen quite a few changes uh, in acceptance for artificial limbs and also even knowledge for artificial limbs and amputations. So we see it, I think, a lot more now in the media. We see it a lot more in magazines and things like that than we ever did. And it's really nice to and refreshing to see that. Um, of course, we need we have to come a lot further further than we have come already. There always is uh, new ways to educate um, Canadians and new ways to educate people on how um, we need to meet the needs of amputees across this country um, and, and how we can, t- can continue to um, really develop um, uh, the ways to help them. Uh, but again, it is all about that knowledge. It's all about learning. And I think that we're really coming to that point um, of, of getting further and further every day. Now, Jamie, I know Gabriel and Jericho are going to connect virtually over the holidays. Uh, Gabriel showing off his new water leg, Jericho's running legs. And, and Jericho talks about attending his first CHAMP seminar at five months old. What exactly is the CHAMP seminar for families? We're able to gather together child amputees at a, at a CHAMP seminar, a child amputee seminar, um, during times um, that are a little bit better than now when we can actually gather in groups. We're able to gather them together uh, with other amputees from across that region, from across that province, so that they can really get together and share different tips and tricks on living with their amputations and develop relationships with other amputees. And that is so important for these child amputees and for these amputees, so that they're able to really have someone uh, in their corner who has been there, who uh, goes through the same struggles um, that they may face every day, um, and that is very important. You know, some of my very best friends uh, are amputees, and that is because I was able to meet them at a child amputee seminar um, over 20 years ago. And, Jamie, so but you, but you guys incredible. would all speak the same language, too. I mean, that's part of the bond, correct? That is part of the bond, definitely. And it's so important to be able to call up that person and say, you know, um, we call them bad arm days or bad leg days, and I'm an arm amputee, so I would able, I'd be able to call up my friends and say, you know, it's been a bad arm day today, um, you know, I wasn't able to accomplish exactly what I wanted to, or I had a lot of people maybe staring at me today, and it wasn't really the greatest day. So we're able to really share that, um, and, and because of the War Amps Winner's Circle philosophy, which really encourages child amputees to accept their amputations and develop a positive approach to these challenges, we're able to really help each other because we have that strong bond with each other and really overcome these challenges. You know, Jamie, I know it's an American story, but for, I think for a lot of people uh, open their eyes about what amputee people with amputees are capable of. Shaquem Griffin is a linebacker in the NFL, and coming out of college at the NFL Combine, he had a little prosthetic addition in his arm so he could bench press. He bench pressed 225 pounds over 20 times clean. And people are like, oh my goodness, look at this guy. It's, there's really, as long as they have the proper prosthetics, there's nothing anyone's not capable of. It's so true. It's so true. And I find that as amputees, we always want to push ourselves and really prove ourselves to the world and even really prove to ourselves that we can do it as well. And so, you know, meeting, uh, meeting many amputees across this country, I see that determination in so many of them. And I see that determination in myself as well. And it's really quite amazing um, what that can do, you know, that positive approach um, and that determination to really succeed in anything. 
It is the War Amps. Waramps.ca. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. They have a YouTube channel. A look for the connection between Jericho and Gabriel over the holidays on their social media feeds. Uh, Jamie Lund is the incredible public awareness officer of the War Amps program and a child who was uh, benefited by War Amps. And look how far she's come. Anything is possible if we all help each other. And at this time of year, it's a fantastic message. Jamie, thank you so much for all the great work that you do in helping your kids like Jericho and Gabriel and kids across Canada. It's deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much for really showing our messages and, and really telling our story. My pleasure. Take care, Jamie. You too. That's it for this edition of The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.